Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, a Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. I recently returned from a week in Kyiv, Ukraine, where I was there to report on, I suppose, uh, Ukraine's military preparedness and their uh, strategic assessment of whether or not Russia plans to go to war again against this country. And somebody that I met who I absolutely thought would be perfect for the show Lyubov Sapolska, she's an expert on hybrid threats and hybrid warfare, formerly the head of the Center for Strategic Communications and Information Security, one of the most keyed in and well-connected people in Ukraine, and she was kind of integral in opening a lot of doors for me, and we just got to talking at a cafe one day about what the nature and shape and form of uh, an imminent or likely Russian attack on Ukraine would look like. Lyubov, it's great to have you on. And I, as I mentioned um, in inviting you on, I kind of wanted to just sort of begin in, with generalities, right? I mean, you know, one of the reasons I, I went to Ukraine is there was a seeming disconnect between the rhetoric coming out of Washington and London and to some extent, I guess, Brussels or NATO capitals and a kind of eerie sense of calm and equilibrium in Kyiv. You know, the Zelensky government has been trying to sort of tamp down on hysteria or, you know, a, a sort of permanent war footing. And even though, based on my interviews and discussions, there doesn't seem to be much daylight in terms of the military assessment, Ukrainians see the number of troops that Russia has amassed at its borders, including now in, in Belarus. There does seem to be a disparity in assessing Putin's intent. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, we had some kind of interesting searching discussions about if Russia were to do some provocation or, or were to attack Ukraine, it might not look the way we all think, meaning conventional columns of troops and tanks and armored personnel carriers rolling into parts of the country or, I mean, God forbid, down Krasadik and Kiev. Tell us sort of your perspective on this, having spent many years now studying the Russian threat. Hi, yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, well, there are many scenarios we consider, and of course, uh, one of them is a direct attack on Kyiv uh, and also attack on critical infrastructure and maybe even possible provocation in Donbass for the purpose of the um, ultimatum to, to the government. It also, we do understand that uh, Russia is blackmailing Western countries, uh, making them to abandon Ukraine. So there are different scenarios, but of course, mostly we are talking about the big war, forgetting at the same moment that there, it's just the part of uh, an iceberg, right? Because there is a, another much bigger part of it, which is invisible and it's a hybrid. And um, as an expert who've been studying this war for a long time, for the last eight years, I can say that uh, the number of these activities um, have been increased for the last few weeks. This includes, of course, disinformation and cyber attacks and economic interference and political corruption and Russian charge and, and many other things. So, yes, we do consider many different scenarios. And yes, people are not in panic, uh, although I personally think that the message of our president is not very convincing. Uh, the message that do not panic because we should preserve, we should save economy and having at the same time more than 100,000 troops on our border, it's, you know, a little bit... Um, 
controversial, I would say. Yeah. Especially when many countries, including and not just including, but first of all, the United States provides us with uh, such a great support and uh, the message, let's save economy and not panic, it's, it's not what a lot of people want to hear. And I do personally think that the presidential office fairly failed in these communications. But uh, again, people are not in panic because we are not surprised. Right. We know where this threat is coming from. We lost almost 15,000 people in this war. We lost territories. So it's not that the war just started for us or is about to start. No, we've been in this war for the last eight years. It just, the world was not maybe paying attention that much. Right. I'm seeing this sort of caricature of the Ukrainian position or response to this threat on particularly social media, most of it coming from the West's you know, this this is like uh, the movie Don't Look Up, or I suppose to flip the metaphor in the other direction, um, ostriches with their head in the sands. But that's not the impression I got. It's a kind of surreal level of fortitude and resolve, if not resignation. I mean, as you say, this is a country that's been at war with Russia for eight years. It's lost 15,000 of its citizens about over 400,000 Ukrainians have participated in, to some extent and at some point in the last eight years in military conflict with Russia. So that's, I think, a 1% of the total population. And I guess it's just, you know, we have to carry on with our lives. We, we, we can't run around in a riotous or panic state. You're right about Zelensky. I've heard a lot of criticisms that, okay, fine, don't, don't try to whip up hysteria, but you, you should be doing more to prepare the population for a, a long, hard struggle in terms of mobilization, just conveying information about hospitals, blood banks, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, I'm wondering, we're looking at all different kinds of scenarios. I just read a very long piece at, at the website Real Clear Defense by a military expert who was trying to envisage what even an invasion up to the Dnieper River would look like and just how difficult it would be for Russia to try and hold major population centers with the forces that it's amassed. I mean, this is even assuming a, a light form of counterinsurgency. Now, my impression is from ordinary Ukrainians and also from Ukrainian government officials. I mean, I met with a, a current deputy in the Rada who said, you know, she, she's never held a gun before in her life, but next week she's going to the shooting range to learn how to aim and fire, and she plans to get a gun permit. I mean, this is a country that I get the impression everybody is going to resist in some way, shape, or form, you know, whether it's militarily or through civic action. Ukraine is not going to roll over. And I, I wonder, I mean, you live there, you've worked in government. What is it that the West doesn't really understand fundamentally about Ukraine and, and its its evolution over the last eight years? I would probably start with this preparation and this calmness, if you don't mind. Yeah. First of all, yes, we all you know learn how to use walkie-talkie. We go and sign up uh, for territorial defense. And uh, we do understand that a direct attack on Kyiv will certainly be very deadly for all sides. And Ukrainians, yeah. of course, have a high motivation to fight. Uh, when you need to defend your land, your family, your country, it is a completely different situation than uh, 
when you need to attack another country where no one is waiting for you. And in our case, we have nowhere to run. Nobody is waiting for us. So we just have to stay and, and fight. But also Ukrainian intelligence is largely inclined to believe that Russia is not yet ready for large-scale offensive. After all, it's not just uh, the matter of first attack, but it's also, as you said, about the maintenance of the, these territories. And uh, of course, we, are, we have great advantages on, on our side. We have knowledge of these areas. This is our land. We know, we know it perfectly. Yeah. And we also have quite powerful ground forces, uh, yes, we are lagging behind in aviation, but our army over the past eight years of conflict, constant confrontation with Russian army in Donbass has gained tremendous experience in the fight on the ground. So, and speaking about the difference and this, um, the thing that the West doesn't understand, I think that West, um, Western countries very often think that it is about some regional conflict, you know, that... It's just some Russian and Ukrainians, like empire is trying to get back its colony. But it's not like this. I think it's much more bigger. It's about, it's about values. It's about democracy. It's about authoritarian regime fighting democracy. Right. And if somebody thinks that Russia would stop on Ukraine, that, that this is a great mistake, because if we are attacked today and if we lose, then other countries, European countries, will be attacked tomorrow. And fortunately, only, you know, the greatest understanding uh, I see among our neighbors like Poland, Baltic states, Finland, Sweden, basically those uh, countries which had experience of dealing with Russia. They know this country, they know how the Kremlin acts, and they know that you cannot appease um, this aggressor. Right. That's the argument that, that one hears quite often, that this isn't really just about Russia versus Ukraine. This is about you know, democracy versus authoritarianism and whether tyrants have the right in the 21st century to invade and annex territory on the basis of blood and soil nationalism or on the basis of their longing for some long lost imperium. I think the difficulty, of course, is that the West itself is now deeply polarized. You know, in the United States, you have a growing contingent on both the left and the right that thinks that America is sleepwalking into World War III. Who cares about Ukraine? Why does this matter? We have so many problems at home, a raging pandemic, cultural crisis, the prospect that uh, a man who tried to overthrow the U.S. government whilst he was president might return to power, and that would be the end of American democracy. And it's been very difficult and, and challenging to explain that, you know, what might be occurring thousands and thousands of miles away actually has a direct impact on what occurs here. Foreign policy doesn't stay foreign for very long. It usually comes home at some point. You know, I often refer, if you don't mind, yes. I just interrupt you here. I also often refer to the notion of fifth generation of warfare. There were four generation of warfare and every time technologies changed, the warfare changed, right? And now many American experts think that this is the fifth generation of warfare, mm. when basically a victim is being, victim doesn't understand that he or she is under attack when, unless it's too late. 
Right. So that's why it's very important to see this invisible part of this war when you are under attack and you are asleep. We were fortunate to wake up in 2014 during Maidan, but what had been happening to us before Maidan, that was actually this hybrid warfare when our army had been destroyed gradually, when we had politics of russification, when Ukrainian language, Ukrainian culture was under pressure constantly. So it's very important to wake up and to see that, yes, maybe you do not have combat, right? You do not have blood and victims, but something is wrong. And uh, this invisible part of the war, it is very harmful in, in the long run because after all, it destroys democracy. It leads right. to the erosion of moral values. It polarizes society, as you mentioned. And it also knocks out the foundation of which the, the democracy based. It uses democracy against democracy. And yeah. this is very harmful. And I think, you know, it's funny, my Georgian friends will argue this point and say it really began in 2008 and a little bit before then. But Absolutely. I would, I would agree with your friends. Yeah. yeah. But Ukraine, I think, was, for contemporary purposes, kind of the proving ground for a lot of things that Russia began to export uh, to the West. And, and by that, I mean cyber attacks. I mean, you guys suffered the worst of it in 2014, 2015, including, I mean, not Petya, which shut down international commerce at the, to the tune of billions of dollars, was first targeted against a Ukrainian accountancy firm. You've had, obviously, information warfare, um, disinformation and propaganda and so on. There's been a kind of weird combination of kinetic military measures mixed with intelligence operations. I mean, all of the activities of Unit 29155 of the GRU, so far as I can tell, with the possible exception of Skripal, but even that is probably related in some way, have to do with Ukraine. You know, terrorist attacks, blowing up ammunition depots, weapons factories in Bulgaria and Czechia, all of that had to do with Ukraine. So again, it doesn't just stay confined within the borders of the nation state, it, it bleeds out. And as you say, I mean, people who are at war not realizing that they're at war is a very dangerous thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I can I fully agree with you and, and your Georgian friend, because uh, now looking at this uh, whole story in retrospective, I understand that it has been started. Yeah, it was started in 2008. But even prior to this, it was 2006 when Putin had a meeting uh, in St. Petersburg and he gathered uh, some uh, intellectuals. He basically presented this uh, phenomenon, this notion of Ruski Mir, right. which is Russian world. But I do not think that it's very correct translation because it's much larger. And he said that Russian world, it's not about physical borders. Russian world, it's about all people who like, like Russian language right. and Russian culture use more frequently these two words, Russian world. And then the huge uh, wave of literature and documentaries and movies uh, appeared, you know, in the Russian media space dedicated to this issue. So, yeah, they started working on this much, much earlier, earlier than 2014. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the pretext for 
invading and seizing Crimea in 2014 was to protect the ethnic Russian population, which in Crimea was a majority and in, in all of Ukraine a minority, from some kind of fascistic takeover of government in Kiev, which of course didn't happen. But now you notice that the, the language has changed and it's no longer simply about ethnic Russians, it's about Russian speakers. And again, another Western misconception or myth is that Ukraine is somehow divided according to linguistic boundaries, and, and those boundaries simply do not exist. Everyone speaks Russian in Kiev. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Ukrainian language is... Not everybody, but many people, many yeah, people do speak right. Russian. Half of Ukrainian army speak right. Russian, you know, and they fight against Russia at the same time. So it's not about language and it's not about right. Russian culture. We, we can like and love uh, Russian culture. It's again about values first. Right, but I mean, what I'm saying is that, you know, Sergei Lavrov and I guess, you know, his masters in, in the Kremlin are now basically saying the people who, who stand to be liberated by the Russian army are in fact most of the enemies the Russian army will be fighting, the combatants. <laughs> they speak Russian, you know, and they don't seek liberation by Russia, quite the opposite. Absolutely. You know what, I think that Russia, and it's not just my opinion, that Russia has changed, the Kremlin has changed its tactics towards Ukraine just once, significantly, it was in 2015, and the beginning of 2016, when they stopped relying on these pro-Russian sentiments, they realized that they will not manage to, you know, to find this uh, Russian-speaking population who would want to join Ruski Mir, you know, Russian world, and, and fight against Ukraine, and who would like to, to, to join this puppet uh, republic uh, republics. So they changed it, and they started deploying the tactics of um, using internal vulnerabilities. And when every gap and every mistake and failure becomes an opportunity to attack, and that is what they use in other countries as well, including the United States. You know, they use your own problems when you um, got polarized and you start fighting with each other, you're divided. And when you fight with each other, when you fight internally, then, of course, you're not cautious. Your um, attention, you know, directed to each other. You do not see what's going on out side of your country you do not see that you might be under attack externally because you put all your efforts on this right. you know on the other side on, on your political opponent for instance you know the debate that we had i, I suppose to some degree are still having about Russian interference in the U.S. presidential election in 2016. A lot of this was predicated on, well, is the you know did they simply exploit internal divisions and polarization to their own advantage, or did they actually create those divisions and that polarization? And you know this is something that it really it's more of an art form than a science. I, I you know we, nobody knows. To what extent that interference, you know, with the use of trolls and ruble bought ads on Facebook and social media and so on may have tipped the scales in favor of Donald Trump or whatever, you know, individual swing states. Nobody has a really concrete, coherent explanation because it's impossible to get into the individual psychology of every American voter. However, in a way, you know, not knowing the answer to that question makes the interference campaign even more powerful, makes it more successful, right? Like the America will for, for decades be debating 
the role that that a foreign, a hostile foreign regime had in determining the course of its history. It's never going to be settled. And it's still like there are camps and factions and sort of political tendencies based on where you fall on this issue. Right. Right. I want to put something to you. And, you know, one of the perspectives I got when I was in Kiev is, and it came from a, an SBU officer who said, look, I think that you know, it's, it's obviously a good thing that America and Britain and Western partners are alive to the threat. Nobody wants to be caught you know, on the back foot, if another Crimea or Donbass situation breaks out. So ringing the alarm bells, forcing this onto a one of the New York Times is a good form of deterrence. And it's also a good form of just preparing the world for what may come. However, we as Ukrainians understand Russia and Russians a lot better than Westerners do. We understand Putin, how he thinks. A lot of us, again, speaking from the perspective of an SBU officer, we're trained by the people who are essentially conducting this war from the other side, right? KGB, GRU. And, you know, one perspective I, I, I heard, which I have to say I found rather compelling, if not entirely persuasive, is that this whole thing is a bit of a game. You know, yes, uh, amassing by the end of February, I think the estimation will be 170 to 175,000 Russian forces pulled from every single military district in the country, a mobilization or deployment that hasn't been seen in 30 plus years, itself a demonstration of a show of force of Russia's modernized and upgraded military capability forcing the West to discuss what Russia can do as opposed to what it will do. I mean, you know, in terms of its ability to invade and hold and occupy territory, take out all of Ukraine's defenses, command and control structures, et cetera, et cetera. We're basically now talking about just how powerful and mighty and unstoppable Russia is. And the SBU guys is like, look, this is exactly what Putin wanted. We are having the debate on his terms. We are giving him essentially everything at the intellectual informational level at the moment. To some extent, he doesn't even have to put a boot across the line in order to achieve at least one of his objectives, which is force Russia back onto the Western agenda, force Russia to be reckoned with as a, if not a superpower, another great power in the making. Now, that's not to say that his strategic objective of regime change in Kyiv will be met using these kind of combined or coordinated toolkit. He may have to invade for that. But I found this very interesting. Our response to this is in in a way sort of engineered in terms of what Russia is trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know that there is a criminal responsibility in Russia if you post something uh, on social media about army movement. Yeah. If you just shoot on your camera something and you post it on Facebook or TikTok, you 
might be put in prison, right. but not now. Now, like TikTok is full of these videos. Right. And uh, there are another, another data which we get is that uh, some of these um, tents with the uh, Russian military tents on our border, um, they cover it with snow, which means they don't, they don't have heating systems. But again, Russia is raising stakes, and we do understand it, and Russia wants to be a superpower. And Russia, uh, I mean, Putin understands only the language of strengths, right? right? He doesn't understand negotiations. But uh, by the way, if uh, we look at um, how Russian propaganda uh, portrays this whole situation to their domestic audience, they always refer to the Cuban crisis, mm, yes. right? And what happened then? All sides had to withdraw their troops, like their nuclear weapon. America from uh, Italy and Turkey and uh, Soviets from uh, Cuba, right? Right. So maybe they expect the West to suggest some sort of compromise. And that's why they are raising stakes so high. Yeah, no, the Caribbean crisis, as the Soviets called it, has come up a lot uh, in the last week for me. And uh, I mean, I think that's a useful analytical prison to study this. But I mean, look, again, I, it's difficult for me, and I go back and forth with this, because there's a great deal of certitude, particularly among Russian military analysts in the United States, that this is happening. And there's no way that Putin would move this kind of manpower and firepower unless he planned to pull the trigger. You know, he simply cannot de-escalate without feeling cowed and, you know, embarrassed. But I don't know. I mean, you know, given the consolidation of power at home, given that the opposition is completely hollowed out, uh, and given that, you know, even though his approval ratings aren't as robust as he probably would like, he he's not going anywhere. Standing down or simply just leaving, if not 175,000 troops, then at least a, a good chunk of them at the border as a way of like holding a gun to Ukraine's head in perpetuity seems to me a, a perfectly feasible state of affairs for him. Maybe, but also we can also look at this as uh, putting got trapped because right. if, he, if he steps back, then it's going to be quite a bad signal to his internal inner circles, political circles, because it will seem like he's, um, he's weak, right? right. And uh, if he go forward and he attack, and especially attack Kiev, then um, it's going to be devastating for the economy. Because again, it's not just about one hit, it's about maintaining these territories, it's about long-term, very bloody war. And do, do Russian citizens want this? Like, it doesn't seem like that, that they support this, these actions. Right. The latest pollings show that um, they do not understand why they should go to Kiev and fight and die there. For what? They do not have this motivation. Right. Like, people do not want this. And I think that Putin still is testing uh, the reaction of the West and the reaction of his all, uh, internal domestic population. He's been feeding uh, his audience with this absolutely bizarre propaganda for eight years. And of course, they kind of got used to this. And uh, he was able to mobilize them around himself and uh, distract them uh, from internal problems with propaganda right but if he starts this big and very bloody deadly war 
I do not really think that he will find much support among his own citizens. Well, and you know, one of the, the ironies of, of all of this is, you know, I've heard it said, and, and I, I suppose I, I see the point of it, is that he, he wants his legacy to be the guy who restored at least some of the grandeur and indeed some of the uh, geography of the former Soviet Union. You know, I mean, this is all about relitigating the end of the Cold War and the collapse of empire and so on. But then he writes this 5,000 word febrile and conspiratorial essay about Ukraine and Russia, where basically there is no distinction between these two cultures and these two countries. So Ukraine is part of Russia. Invading Ukraine, therefore, by his own lights, is to essentially declare civil war within Russia. And as you point out, I mean, Russians don't want that. This is not going to Syria to fight, quote unquote, jihadists. This is not pacifying a, a breakaway republic like Chechnya. This is, you know, fighting your fellow Slav, fighting people who have family and cultural ties in Russia. And it seems to me folly because, you know, first of all, I mean, just the, the expanse of territory. If you were to go up to the Dnieper River, it would be like conquering and occupying territory the size of, of Syria, right? Chechnya is the size of, of Jamaica, a much more ambitious and bold and dangerous undertaking for him than anything else he's yet attempted. And even though I think, you know, his track record from achieving his objectives militarily has been pretty good thus far, th this could break the bank for him, right? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This is like a weird kind of postmodern thing where you listen to one set of analysts and, and pundits say, no, it'll be a cakewalk. It'll be easy breezy for Russia, given their arsenal and given their, you know, capability. But then you go to Ukraine, you're like, Everybody here is going to, babushkas in Kramatorsk are going to be, you know, wielding World War II rifles and shooting at anything that moves to defend their villages. I mean, I, I just don't understand how it can be couched in such kind of blithe terms. And maybe, maybe that's part of it, too. Maybe having that debate is a way of trying to make Russia seem like this 10-foot-tall monster that simply can't be chopped down. You know what we say in Ukraine? Mm. A lot of people for these last eight years keep saying this, that nobody did for the unity of Ukrainians that much as Putin. Right. But yeah, we are in, united against him. And obviously, I think that it might lead to collapse, collapse of, of Russia, because it's going to be very, very bloody, you know. It's not easy walk for him. Right. But also going back to the, your question about how Western countries see Putin and where they are mistaken, I think that very often they see him as a meta metaphysical evil. They think that he's a mastermind, right. you know, that this is a very grand, uh, you know, and, and, and evil mind. But what we see, we see like a very usual criminal but this criminal has a lot of power but it's not like something absolutely great you know but evil now we don't have this uh, impression in ukraine and also of course you mentioned babushkas and i, I would say that uh, ukraine has a huge very rich history of resistance yes we tried to have our um, independent country it was very, very short story, but still in um, 1918 and 19, 1919, and um, yeah, then Bolsheviks came and took it over. But I mean, and since then, we've been fighting against 
Soviet army against Russians. We lost a few generations of Ukrainian intellectuals. They were killed or they were sent to Lulag. So we, we have this story of resistance. And of course, it's not going to be easy for them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there were instances of partisan resistance and warfare up until the 1950s. And in fact, I was told by someone in the defense ministry that when America decided to go to war in Vietnam, they were actually studying Ukrainian guerrilla warfare as a, not that it did the Americans any good in Vietnam, but as a, as a matter of kind of counterinsurgency doctrine. So yeah, but listen, I wanted to ask you uh, another thing. So you painted a, a co- kind of complicated but interesting picture of how trying to paralyze Kiev, not just with military means, but you know, cyber attacks, blacking out the city, doing things to put pressure on the capital might actually be a way for Putin to achieve his goal without committing such a large number of troops. I wonder if you could sort of uh, talk about that and kind of unpack. So, yeah, I think in Kiev, a lot of people do not think that this scenario with big offensive in in Kiev is very much plausible, but they do think that uh, there might be some attacks on infrastructure combined with cyber attacks. And of course, if there is no electricity, if people cannot, you know, call to their relatives, to their families and find each other, then of course it it's, might cause panic. And this is dangerous because, again, we didn't get instructions from our government what to do in case of panic. And then they might use this moment right. because uh, what Russia is trying to show that our state is very weak, that our institutions do not work. So if our institutions work like now, like pretty well, then it's going to be difficult for them to attack. But if there is mass and chaos and panic and nobody knows what to do, then of course, this is a good pretext for, for, for an attack. Provocation and there's a high risk of provocation in Donbass, you know, yes. as they did in Chechnya, you know, when they kill civilians and they blame uh, Ukrainian side. And it's not just Chechnya. Last year, uh, there was a huge story about five years old uh, kid, um, the boy who was killed, as they said, by Ukrainian drone, like Ukrainian military drone. But it was far from front line, and our military, our drones couldn't even get there because uh, Russian occupational forces um, had and still have very strong anti-electronic um, uh, systems there. Right. So, uh, but they blamed us, and they, uh, for external audience, they said that the Ukrainians are killing civilians, and they are actually going to repeat Serebrenica. Right. It was extremely cynical. Because we all remember that Russia was the one who actually blocked the UN Council on recognizing Milosevic actions as genocide. Right. But now it's a genocide that hasn't happened yet in Ukraine that will resemble the one that they didn't believe happened in in Bosnia. Yes. If they uh, make uh, provocations like that in Donbass and then all the blame to Ukrainian sides, it might be. But again, everybody is waiting. It's not that, you know, it's not 2014 or even 2015 when we do not know Russian toolkit and and, uh, the whole West is surprised. We do understand their tactics. We do understand the way they might... uh, cause this causes belly, as they say, how they can find this excuse for an for attack. 
Well, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why the U.S. has been so kind of hyperactive and leaking stuff to the press. I mean, I don't know if you saw today or yesterday, the New York Times, the Washington Post had a story that U.S. intelligence has alleged that uh, the GRU is manufacturing a, a film yeah. with essentially crisis actors designed to show atrocities, grieving widows, this kind of thing, yeah. and that that would be used as the, the causus belli to move in. A, another kind of interpretation of events I heard, and this actually came as news to me, but according to the constitutions of the so-called Lugansk People's Republic and Donetsk People's Republic, the rest of the, those oblasts are occupied by Ukraine, meaning the occupied territories aren't by the pro-Russian separatists and Russian military, it's the Ukrainian army. So if there was some kind of cross-frontier attack, the DNR and the LNR could invoke their constitutional right, as it were, to invite Russia in as peacekeepers. Yeah, yes. And you know, the thing I keep hearing is Putin is a is very legalistic about his aggression. He needs to have something on paper or something that I mean might be implausible to you and me, but he can at least bring forth in advance. You know, I'm doing this as a defensive measure, not as an act of aggression. Yes, it's at least something nominal, you know, even if right. everybody thinks that, of course, it's it's not right, it's not plausible. But again, they know their methods, they know how propaganda works. And I like to refer to uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, French postmodernist, who once said that there are two types of discourse. One discourse is science discourse, when information authorizes itself with the improvement, right, with facts. And another discourse is narrative discourse. So when information authorizes itself uh, with constant repetition, and the more you repeat uh, something, the more truthful in people's right. mind it becomes. So uh, they know that if it's even something nominal, they will just repeat the same, the same for many, many years and it might become legal, you know? Right. And of course, you know, the danger too is that the purveyors of these narratives could, based on the same sort of psychological effect, come to believe their own propaganda and their own bullshit. You know, this is one of the things I've also been hearing. What if Putin actually does think that, for instance, Ukraine is run by fascists or Ukraine is mounting some kind of provocation against Russia? What if he's being fed bad intelligence by his war party, which is presumed to consist of Patrushev, Bastrykin, and Shoigu? You know, he's living in this pandemic-created bubble with limited access to other stakeholders in the Russian government. And, you know, um, somebody told me recently that when Andropov took the decision to go into Afghanistan, you know, his war party knew it was going to be a disaster, but no one dared tell him otherwise, right? It was just a constant sort of form of, of reassurance and reaffirmation of his narrative, yeah. his belief. So, you know, this is the danger too. It's, it's not just that, um, you know, repeating something ad nauseum makes the, the target of, of that sort of information warfare believe it, but actually the, the the people who've concocted the narrative can also grow to believe it as well. Yes, and one thing that I know for sure that the Kremlin circles, they are absolutely convinced that the West is has, has weakened for the last few years. There, there is division among Western partners uh, and uh, the US uh, 
uh, after especially withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan, you know, they were convincing their um, audience. And, and, and then I heard a lot of Russian speakers that you see America is not superpower anymore. They started saying it during Obama uh, presidency. Right. But now after the latest events, latest developments, they are like totally convinced that this is true, that the dominant powers are Russia and, and China. This is sort of a controversial thing in the United States, largely for domestic political reasons. You know, nobody, no sitting administration, no party in power wants to hear that it, based on its own actions or misadventures, is being perceived as weak and spent by a foreign adversary. So, look, you know, the, the argument about credibility, America's credibility, um, whether or not it's, it's taken as seriously as it once was, it seems to be more controversial in America than it does yeah. abroad. But yeah, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense. You've got, as I say, this deeply polarized American electorate, you know, a president who is caricatured by half the country as being, you know, borderline senile and sleepy and old and not fit for purpose, an ignominious withdrawal from America's longest war. And now seemingly a good time to muck about in Ukraine and see what the consequences may be or what the consequences uh, will not be to, to, you know, I mean, look at the German position, look at the French position on this. It's not exactly rally around the flag and total solidarity within NATO. Yes, and that's why the American position, British position, and other countries' positions are very important to us. And it's a great opportunity right. for us to show the whole world how this war actually looks like, like how aggressive Russia is, and that we are a victim of, of this country. Instead, I'm absolutely disappointed that our president says something like, uh, let's do not panic and let's not trust uh, all the intelligence of, uh, that we are provided uh, by other states. I don't think that yeah. it is like um, the message we, we would like to hear from our president. There should be unity, right, in this question, because we all have to show Putin that that he will pay for this. Yeah. Again, he's testing the reaction and maybe he doesn't even know yet whether he's going to attack or not. But uh, if he sees that there is division, that Germany is not going to you know, support Ukraine, France is not going to support Ukraine, and Ukraine is basically left alone with just Ukraine and the United States, then, of course, it gives uh, him much better cards. So I think it's a great opportunity to the Western countries, especially European countries, to show solidarity and to show unity. And it's funny because, you know, you could argue that Zelensky's keep calm and carry on tactics are driven by obviously domestic agenda. He doesn't want the economy to crater. He doesn't want to be seen as the guy inciting panic who maybe accidentally provokes Putin into war or whatever. But you see now in a host of Western countries, domestic politics also dictating the response. I mean, Boris Johnson's government could very easily collapse at any moment, given the, the scandals over his lockdown nightlife. Yeah. And he goes to Kiev and has seemingly turned Ukraine into, you know, the big distraction, the, the show of strength of, of, of Great Britain. President Erdogan and Turkey was in Ukraine the other day. And Turkey, which has been seen as kind of the weak man of NATO or the sick man of Europe, its economy is in tatters. Erdogan's 
Yeah, but the relationship with Ukraine is actually quite strong, and Erdogan is using this as a uh, you know to bolster his domestic popularity. So, in a weird way, you know, even the cynicism and hypocrisy and weakness of the West is now being kind of repurposed into international security bravado and strength. You know, <laughs> Ukraine is turning pretty kind of lackluster governments into something at least, you know, superficially or optically stronger than they may appear. Yes. Uh, and of course, Joe Biden, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, kind of uh, ironical because that's what uh, the Kremlin has been doing for years. They were uniting their domestic audience with this, you know, militarization topic. They were constantly yeah. feeding them with, uh, you know, necessity to arm the country, necessity to fight, and so on, so on. So that's how it works. It actually works. You know, these methods, yeah. they work. Yeah, because it's about something bigger. It's, it's about something really important if we do not show the aggressor. And we know, you know, we have lessons learned. We should have lessons learned, you know, from 20th century. And if we do not stop an aggressor now, then he might go much, much further. Absolutely. Uh, Lyubov, uh, we got to wrap it up here, but I can't thank you enough for, uh, for joining me and also for all of your help in, in Kiev. Uh, you made my trip uh, totally worthwhile. And it was amazing how all the meetings that you managed to line up in one day came together in that same day. So, you know, my utmost gratitude to you for that. And look, I mean, whatever happens, hopefully not much, but if, if something does kick off, um, we should have you back on to discuss sort of how it's playing out on the ground in, in Kyiv and elsewhere in Ukraine. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the discussion. My pleasure. You've been listening to Foreign Office, my guest this week, uh, Lyubov uh, Sibolska. She's an expert on hybrid threats and hybrid warfare. Also the former head of the Center for Strategic Communications and Information Security. I'm Michael Weiss, and we will see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you.